All right. They were ready to go. They're tired of all these announcements. Um, all right. We're going to be in 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2 and chapter 4 today. And I, I thought, man, I really should have promoted this series. So we came, Robbie and I worked together at a, a church where um, the pastor was known for essentially every week saying, don't miss this week. This is the most important message. I've, I've said that before of like, you know, I felt like there's been a big message. I just have never, I'm not a very good hype man. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not good at that. But I thought this week as I was preparing this, you know, I, I could have kind of let out to let people know that we were going to be talking about the Antichrist today. That might have gotten some interest, right? Because I'm getting a lot of people who are asking these questions, a lot of people who are interested in that today. People asking questions of, are we in the end times? People wondering, is the Antichrist here? And it, and it comes from 1 John. So as we um, read this, I want to pray, and I want to dig into this very important question that John addresses Father, please help us, God, as we turn to your word. Help us to have transformed minds in our thinking about what we read here. Holy Spirit, would you convict us of sin? Would you shed light on blind spots for us? Would you, would you help us to discern the difference between our, our understandings that we've always held and what we actually see here in the text? And God, for the things that are here that we, that we believe and that we cherish, I pray that you would fortify those things, that you would encourage us with those truths, and that it would, um, it would transform the way that we live. God, I pray most of all that we would be drawn to the person and to the work and the way of our Lord Jesus. And that even as we discuss these things, that our hearts and our minds and our eyes would be lifted to him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So John says in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So I just want to pause there. We're going to be kind of taking these things and, and looking at these themes. But this is, this is one of these passages that, that addresses this idea. That, that he's saying it's the last hour. And right now, it is all over the place. People saying that these have got to be the last days. Look at all the things that are happening. Look at, look at what's happening overseas. Look what's happening in our country. Look at what's happening among um, the people even in our churches. We see, we see churches kind of being divided and, and people like claiming truth and pitting themselves against one another. And it, it feels so chaotic. And we wonder, is, are these the last days? And whenever I hear that question, I, I think... I think a couple of things. One, I think, well, every generation has said that. Like, some of you are old enough to remember multiple iterations of this, of, of the surely, surely Jesus is returning very soon. But I also think, and so, so on one hand, we say like, well, you know, maybe, but, but it's not like we haven't had these kinds of events before. But the other answer is clearly found here in 1 John, which is a resounding yes because John says, right now is the last hour. Right now, these are the last days. So really what we see in Scripture 
is that the entire time between the first coming of Jesus and when Jesus returns is referred to as the last days or the last hour. Now, for us, that feels weird. But, but think about this. I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of years before the Messiah actually came. So even if we mirrored that, we may only be a third of the way until Jesus returns. And if you really want to kind of have your mind blown, consider this. If Jesus waits as long to come back the second time as he did the first time, then we, right now, today, will one day in heaven be considered the early church because of the amount of time that could pass. So they have been the last days or the last hour for the last 2,000 years. And it may be for another 2,000 years, or it may be for another two years. We don't know, and Jesus makes this clear that we don't know. So I want to deal with that. The, that. That is what we mean when we say the last hour. If we're just looking at John and, and looking at the other epistles, we see that this is what they mean. Now, he also addresses the Antichrist, which is another question that comes up a lot. Is Okay, well, what about, what about the Antichrist? Like, is this person the Antichrist? Is this person? I had somebody who say, um, when I mentioned that we were going to talk about this, uh, he responded with, uh, so which politician is it? I thought it might be a fun joke to do that, but then I thought, no, that's... <laughs> Many of you would not find that funny. Um, so I'm not going to do that. But what's interesting here is understand that First and Second John are the only places where the word Antichrist is used. Now, for some of you who have grown up into the church, you're going to think, well, that's impossible. Obviously, in Revelation, no. Not even in Revelation is the word Antichrist used. Now, the beast is used and talked about, and that's often drawn as a, as a parallel, but the word antichrist, this idea of antichrist, is only used here and only by John, and only in his pastoral epistles. It's not mentioned anywhere else. It's unclear about what that is. Is, is it going to be like a super antichrist, or is it, is it a bunch of antichrists? What, what is clear is what John is talking about here. And here he's not talking about one person in particular, but he's talking about many. He's saying they're here now. They've already been here, and there's more to come. He's not just talking about some future event when Jesus returns. He's talking about right now. He says, we know it's the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So what is clear is that this Antichrist, this spirit of Antichrist, whether it's manifested in people or a thought or whatever it is, it's, it's against Christ. It's opposed to Christ. John is establishing the, the work and the message of Jesus as central, and he's saying there are those who will oppose this message. They are opposed to Christ. They are anti-Christ. And yet many of us end up walking through life trying to figure out, like trying to decode the, the Bible as if there's some way to figure out, like, well, it'll be this, 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 and this. Therefore, I put it into my little computer and this is who it spits out. And we, it leads us into things like talking about the mark of the beast, which the mark of the beast, and this is another thing that just keeps coming up, but the mark of the beast is just an, it's evidence of who you belong to. 
This is what John has been saying all along. He's talking about those who walk in the light and abide in the light, abide in the Father. Those who walk in the darkness are not of the Father, they're of the devil. That is the mark of the beast. Sam Storms talks of, of how this is a parody. This idea of mark of the beast is a parody of God's seal. It's not something that catches you off guard. It's not something you're going to stumble into. I say this mostly to comfort those who are nervous about that. I've had people express like, well, I'm, I'm worried to get the vaccine because like, what if that's the mark of the beast? I'm worried to get to, to, to buy into this thing or to use my credit card or to, to use this phone or whatever because that, that's like a microchip. And so that's like, that's what I've heard is going to be the mark of the beast. Listen, the Bible's very clear that the mark of the beast is not something that you just get, you kind of stumble into, that someone who is fully devoted to Jesus and loves Jesus just kind of, oops, accidentally gets this thing, and now they spend eternity in hell. It is the revelation of the, the condition of our hearts. It is a parallel and it's, it's a parody of God's seal. So in Revelation, it talks about how we have God's seal on our forehead. Uh, we just sang, and Sarah pointed out that, that line, that, you know, seal me for thy courts above. Like, the you know, Holy Spirit seals us. We are given the seal of the Father. We are marked and, and as belonging to him. And those who do not belong to him are not marked by that seal, but by a different seal. One that identifies them as belonging to the evil one. It's important that we understand this, that, that John is talking about this and he's saying it, he's talking about it in the same way that he talks about those who do not have love. If you do not have love, then you're, then you're a liar, then the truth is not in you. You do not belong to the Father. In essence, if you are walking in darkness, that is the mark of the beast. So, who are these antichrists? What does this look like? How do we discern? How do we, how do we test and know? How do we make sure that we are walking in the light? Well, notice what he says in verse 19, talking about the Antichrists. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are all, that they all are not of us. This is critical to understanding this. These are people that they thought were for them. They were sent out from us. These are people who were sent with the gospel message. But they demonstrated in the long run by their lives that they were not of us. They claimed to belong to God, but had, in essence, not the seal of God on their forehead, but revealed that they actually had the mark of the beast. Not some tangible tattoo or marking or microchip, but their hearts. Alistair Begg says that there are some who share our earthly company, but not our heavenly birth. This is what makes this so dangerous and why we need to be aware and why while we're being distracted by the enemy to all these things around us that really the scriptures are clear and plain that our biggest dangers are always within. 
Now, I'm not saying that every pastor or leader who has fallen in ministry is an antichrist. And it doesn't take long to just look back and see all of the, the people who preached the Bible and preached gospel truth, but then fall. It doesn't take much to find a, a, a bunch of those examples. I'm not saying that all of those, that John would look at those and be like, yep, see, Antichrist. But I think some of them are. The spirit of the Antichrist is certainly there. It's opposed to Christ, maybe not in the words they are using, but their lives and actions and the heart that is, that is producing these things, that it is opposed. Like something is Antichrist. Something is opposed to Christ. And this is why all the warnings are against those who claim to know God, but put stumbling blocks in front of people to get to him. They are, as Jesus says, wolves in sheep's clothing, and that those are far more dangerous than wolves who are prowling around the pen. So how do we deal with this? How do we then further recognize? So if they came out from us, but they were not of us. Like, how do, how do we know? Well, they, this is where they came from. Is they come from us. And their method, though, is deception. He says in, in chapter 2, verse 26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So John is warning them that, that they are trying to deceive you. And he says they are from the world. In chapter 4, verse 5, he says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Now, notice what he's saying there. They, they came out from us, but he said they're actually from the world. And therefore, you can tell that because they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. And understand when he says the world, he's not just talking about people outside of the church. He's saying those who are worldly. They listen to them. They're drawn to them. They speak from the world. They use worldly logic that is opposed to Christ. They, they manipulate arguments. They give half facts and half truths to build this thing to put them opposed to Christ. And sometimes they do it under the guise, as John would say, under the guise of preaching Christ. So they can say like, oh no, this is, this is Christian. But we have to ask the question, is it? You know, one, one thing that I see a lot is people who claim that they are presenting like a Christian ideal or Christian principles or Christian worldview, that they cite other sources far more frequently than the Bible. And when they cite the Bible, it is just kind of cherry-picking things out of context to try to, try to strengthen the argument. So, for example, an article that promotes conspiracy theories full of, of half-truths designed to stir up fear that then quotes a random proverb out of context somewhere is not biblical. Does that make sense? So you read an article, it talks about all the things that are happening and all the things that are going on everywhere else and all the things we have to be worried about and all the things that the, that the other side is doing wrong and then says, you know, for God's word says and then it's just some random proverb or some random verse from a psalm or some random verse from somewhere and, and completely out of context, but they, they say that and then someone says, no, it's biblical because they use the Bible. 
Well, then you're going to have to have a conversation about what the devil did with Jesus in the wilderness. Because all he did with Jesus was quote the Bible. So quoting the Bible doesn't make it biblical. Amen? Right? Okay, so we're going to have to have more discernment than that. We're going to have to be able to understand and dig and, and understand what is God's word actually saying here and does this apply? He says in verse 21, chapter 2, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. I thank you, Captain Obvious. Could there be something more straightforward than to saying no lie is of the truth? And yet... We fall for this all the time. Look, I, I'm in the same boat. Like, it's so tempting. Like, when somebody says something that I want to agree with, that my flesh wants to be there with them, I tend not to critique it as much. Right? But when somebody says something that, I, that my initial reaction is, ah, well, then I'm like, I'm picking apart every word. But John's saying simply, look, you, you understand this because you know the truth. We've given you the truth, and there, no lie is of the truth. So partial truth is, is a lie. Like truth doesn't have lies in it, mixed in. So we discern in, in the spirit. We, we need to be in the spirit, saturated in the word and with the fellowship of believers. See, their, their, their method is deception and their motive is greed. So the Antichrist's motive is greed. It's self-serving. I think I have a, a slide here. Now I'm trying to... It was that awkward moment where I forgot to bring up my slides and I kept thinking that I would find a time to unawkwardly pull them up. But clearly that failed. In Second Peter, Peter says this, Many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So they do so for their own greed. It's in their greed that they will exploit you with false words. And John's saying, little children, don't be deceived by that. You know the truth because the truth dwells in you. Don't be deceived by these things. They do it for their own greed. They offer themselves as solutions for problems that they created. This is so consistent. We see this all the time. They are offering a solution to a problem that they have created. To, they are offering themselves as the peace in the midst of chaos that they created. They create headlines that make you click. And, then, and as you pass them around, they gain more and more revenue. And their concern is not for you. Their concern is that you would pass on their content so that they would make more money, that they would gain more influence. It's been going on since the beginning, since the garden. And, and their destruction, John says, it's, or Peter says, it's not asleep. It's very much alive and well. That's why John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. To see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
And so in John, 1 John chapter 4, he says this, this is why we don't believe every spirit. We don't believe everything that claims to be from God. We don't believe everything that claims to be good. We test everything to see, is this from God? And it's important because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And our tools for this are the word and the spirit and the church family. Grace says in chapter 2 in, in, in verse 27, he says, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now what does he mean? You have no one... You're, you're in no need to, to have anyone teach you. Like you could say, I, I've had people say, like, well, that's why we don't have sermons. That's why we don't, we don't have to have pastors or shepherds or anything like that because, because John says himself, we don't need any of that. I can, just, I can just discern whatever's true in myself. But obviously, that's not what John is saying by evidence of the fact that he even wrote this letter. Right? He's teaching them. He's instructing them. So, so what's going on? He's, he's talking about outside knowledge, outside of the word of God and outside of the gospel. He's saying you don't need to attain something higher. You are indwelled by the Spirit and have been given the word of God. You don't, you don't need additions to that. What we need are clarifications of it. Right? That's the difference between biblical teaching and worldly teaching. Worldly teaching brings something new, something that's outside of Scripture, outside of, of what we have known and following Jesus and said, hey, here's this new and different way that is even better or you know, that God has given me this other message and I know that it's not found in Scripture, but, but this is this other thing. That's what John is saying. You don't need any of that. People are going to come in and tell you you need that. You don't need that. Biblical teaching is looking at the scriptures and through the Holy Spirit trying to understand it and discern it and saying, God, help me share this in a way that makes sense and help us to apply this to our lives today. And so what we know is we, we, we don't need, like, listen, we don't need like advanced articles and more information about the virus to know that we don't put our hope in a vaccine, but in our Jesus. Right? You don't, you don't need more information about political election fraud to know that our God places kings and queens and rulers and authorities. We don't need that. You don't need more dirt on your political enemies to know how to treat them or how to overcome evil. So the, the tools of our discernment are the word of God, but not just the word of God, because, because the Bible interpreted through selfish motives and the spirit of the Antichrist is Akin, it's the same thing as the devil quoting scripture to Jesus in the desert. So we don't just memorize this as a textbook and with our own fleshly understanding, figure it out and come to these conclusions and create a new law. But rather, we come to God's word and dwell by the Holy Spirit, begging the Holy Spirit to say, help me understand. Give me new eyes to see. I need, I need new eyes. I need eyes from you because my eyes won't see the beauty that's here. My mind won't fully grasp this. My flesh is going to kick against this. My sinful flesh is, gonna, is not going to want to go this way. Help me do the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome that. And we have the Spirit that dwells in us who is greater than he who is in the world. And he leads us to all truth. And John's saying, you have this in you. So we have to learn to discern his voice. And how do we do that? With the help of the family. 
Because what can happen is you say, great, got it. I, I know I'm supposed to do that. And so now I discern what this means. And so now the Holy Spirit has told me this. And, and I have had people say, I've heard people say, yes, I read God's word about this. And the Holy Spirit has helped me interpret it. And my conclusion is I am called to leave my wife and marry my secretary. True story. And that's why we need one another. Because listen, the, the deception of our hearts, yours and mine included, knows no bounds. We can talk ourselves into all kinds of things. But when you're surrounded by godly people who are also submitted to the Spirit and submitted to God's Word, we wrestle with that together and we say, Brother, I, I think that's contrary to Scripture. This is what John's saying in, in, in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, little children, remember that phrase again, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Now this sounds awfully bold, but we'll get into that. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, How can John be so bold as to say that? There's really two reasons. One, one is what we'll, we'll dig in here in just a minute, but it's, it's his apostolic authority, right? So, so he's an apostle. He's been entrusted in a unique way in that time to deliver God's word to God's people. He's saying the same thing that Peter says and that Paul says, like, listen, listen to us. We've been entrusted with this. But the other is pastoral love. Paul does the same thing in, in 1 Thessalonians. So here, I've got this on the screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So this is Paul now. Do you see the parallels of what Peter's talking about with the Antichrist? He's saying, look, our motives... Does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So you notice he's, he's testing our hearts, this mark, like what we are sealed by. God's testing that. We didn't come with these motives of greed and deception. It's not how we came to you. He says, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. You ever think about how much authority these guys had? Like what they could have done with it, how they could have lived and yet, they suffered, and they were poor, and they were persecuted. So he says, we, we could have done this, but, but we didn't do this. He said in verse 7, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Do you see 
why John is able to say this and why Paul says this here. He's saying, look, we've been entrusted with the gospel, but the way that you can know that is we are not motivated by deception and by greed and by taking advantage of you. Rather, instead, we gave of ourselves to you. We, we loved you. Do you see the contrast? Like, that's, that's what you have in the elders here. Men who have been entrusted with the, the gospel message, which we get from the word of God, and those who share not only this message, but our very lives. So as you're trying to figure out, okay, I know God's word and discernment, and so that's why I, I, to help me do that, the first person I go to is the guy on YouTube who I've never met and doesn't care for me and only cares that I subscribe to his videos. Come on. Listen to not only elders, but brothers and sisters who have stayed up with you weeping until 2 a.m., who have sacrificially given to care for you, who have demonstrated over and over again that I don't need anything from you. I'm not trying to manipulate you into anything. I just, I love you and I want you to see what God has for you. You know, we live in an era where people depend more on distant personalities that you don't know and who don't know you, whether they are pastors or speakers or political activists. But God has given us, us. This is the family. You know that whole thing of like you can, you know, the family or friends, friends of the family you can choose? That whole idea, which is just bonkers because it's kind of like devaluing family. Like family are the people, are the friends that God chooses, right? So some of you have people in your family that you're looking at them and saying, man, if we didn't know each other and I just met you at college or at work or whatever, we would not hang out. But because we're family, I would do anything for you. Well, that's what the church is. It's not a group of friends that you select that you're like have a bunch of things in common with. God says, I formed you as a people. You have one thing in common. And that even though if you and I met and we were not believers and we went to work or whatever, you might not want to have anything to do with me. But guess what? Here, we're family. I would do anything for you. And so would the other elders of this church and so would many of the people sitting around you right now. And they've demonstrated over and over and over again. Not without flaws, not without failures, but it's there. So those are our tools. We have the word of God. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And we have the family of God. And so then all of that is used to understand the message of God. Now, there's a thing about, like, well, how do I know that this message that's being preached is authentic or real and, and not counterfeit? Because Paul, or Peter's saying, Paul, Peter, and John, and Mary probably, they are all saying that, um, that this message that comes from the Antichrist is lies. It's meant to deceive you. It's not the truth. And so we need to also understand the message. But we get so tied up in trying to chase down, like, well, what are false teachings? Can I just suggest that we spend most of our time Focusing on the true message, right? Like, so it's a, it's a well-worn illustration, but it's so fitting that, that, that there are people in our government whose job is to be able to spot counterfeit currency. That's their job. 
Someone raises a question about, is this $100 bill legit? There are people who are trained to know if that is false or if it's real. And the way they train them is not by getting them to see all the ways that people try to fool them, but the way they train them is that they, that they look over and over and study with great detail what an authentic $100 bill looks like. They study that so much that whenever they see something that's not that, they know it. And that's the encouragement that we are given here. That we are to focus on the real thing. It's tempting to try to focus on all these other things and get distracted. But when we do that, we fill our minds with those false teachings, which then adds some confusion, which starts to get us when we don't even realize in the back of our mind that we've so focused on those things that we start to look at the actual gospel and we start to feel, we, we reject it. Like, We start to hear something and we say, well, that sounds like liberal propaganda. And then you realize that's actually a quote from Jesus. The spirit of the Antichrist will get you to focus on other things. And the best thing to know is the actual message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So like we've been talking about, walk in the light, behold Jesus John says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So here's, here's the, the, the main message that gets perverted that you just want to watch out for is Antichrist will diminish the person and the work and the way of Jesus. What's interesting is they won't won't necessarily just flat out oppose it, but they will redefine it and manipulate it. They'll kind of change it. They'll fill it with half-truths and sprinkle in some lies, and they'll kind of create this own version. But but these are kind of the, the big things. Like, who is Jesus, and, and what is the work? What has he done? How are we saved? So they claim something different about this. And so that's why John says when, he, when he's saying, test these spirits, he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So there he talks about this, this is Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist. So this can be oversimplified today. So don't forget that when John wrote this, people were were still debating who Jesus was. Was he a good teacher? Was he a rabbi? Was he a prophet? Was he a martyr? But John is hinging everything on the fact that Jesus came from God. And so he's saying, like, this is one of the dividing things. Like, those who say Jesus is from God, they're of God. 
But those who say he's not, that he's some kind of lesser form, that he was a a good man or that he was created by God or any of these different things, or he's just a good rabbi or a good teacher, like they're not from God. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Antichrist, opposed to Christ. It's the same song today, but a different version. So they reimagine or redefine. That's what's happening. And you'll hear things like this. Of course we believe Jesus is king. I can stand up here at every election cycle and say, well, we know who our king is. And everybody says amen. But then when we leave this room, we say, yeah, I know, I know, I believe that Jesus is king, but we need the right person in the White House or he won't be king for long. It's because I believe in the gospel being spread that I've focused everything on religious freedom and political policies. And anything that that smells of losing that freedom that we have, then I'm going to fight tooth and nail to keep it. These are versions of this. And the question still comes down to who is Jesus? Is he from God or is he not? Is he God incarnate or is he not? Is he he Lord of our lives or is he just a life coach that kind of advises me? Is he a a political um, leader or is he a servant of his enemies? Was his life meant for us or was it just a means to an end and, and now we're to live differently because after all, we're not Jesus. Is he central to everything or is he the add-on? Is he the source of all wisdom or does he just kind of pop in and just give some spiritual nuggets every once in a while as we're trying to figure out how life really works? Is he central in in, in our teaching? Like, are we proclaiming him? See, the spirit of the Antichrist will diminish the person of Jesus, often today by just moving him to the background, as if he is a distant person. God who just kind of observes like he gave us instructions and now we're supposed to go in our own strength and he just kind of like a hall monitor just walking around and approving or disapproving but that is to deny the incarnation that God became flesh and dwelt among us and then he said when I go I bring to you the spirit the spirit I will leave with you and he indwells in you we are incarnational people And so they will diminish that. They will also diminish the work of Jesus. The the spirit of the Antichrist says, in short, that the work of Jesus, namely in his death, his life, death, and resurrection, is insufficient to bring about all that God has commanded. You hear that? The spirit of the Antichrist says that the work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection is insufficient to bring about all that God has commanded. See, in John's time, this was often identified by those who believed they still had to obey all the law. They did not see Jesus as having fulfilled the law. They saw him maybe as the forgiveness for their sins, but now they had to obey all of the law. They basically got their slate wiped clean, and now they get a new start to try again. And so they would come into the churches, and they would say, well, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey these dietary laws. You've got to do all these things. And Paul calls this foolishness. Saying, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? They believed this and they would start to focus on it because that's, that's more measurable. And pretty soon the message is dominated by a focus on righteous behavior rather than the death and resurrection of Jesus as our righteousness. This is why we preach the cross so much. The work of Jesus is sufficient. It's sufficient to transform you, to save you, to rescue you, to change you, to make you new, to bring you eternal life. 
It is sufficient when he returns and judges the living and the dead. The sufficiency of the work of Jesus is critical. And we often say we believe it in our own words, but when it doesn't yield the results we want, we look to other things. And we demonstrate that. We do it personally when we, we settle for behavior modification rather than heart transformation. It's more important to me that you do the right things than that I see your heart change. And we do it on a larger scale when we put our hope and our laws and our earthly freedoms above the power of the Spirit. This plays out a lot when, when people say that you, when they kind of offer that you can have the kingdom without the king. What do I mean by that? They, they basically want to make heaven here on earth without Jesus as Lord of all. And so we do things by trying to legislate that people live like Jesus without Jesus being Lord. And it doesn't work. On either side, it doesn't work. Whether your goal is to save babies or to eradicate the evil of racism. People who say, yeah, we're we're saved by grace, but we have to live by God's moral law and make sure that everyone else does. Yet Paul says where the law is, sin increases. And so what we understand is that that is actually the spirit of the Antichrist. Because I'm opposed to Christ in the sense that we don't really need Jesus. He already gave us what we needed. He told us what was right and wrong. And now our job is in our strength to make sure everybody follows that. Forgetting that he is the reason why anybody can follow that. He is the one who transforms. It is his work. And so we will consistently proclaim his work on the cross and in the resurrection. Like, listen, if your goal is to help someone walk in righteousness, which is more important? That you create a law that makes it illegal to sin? Or you introduce them to the one who loved them and gave gave himself up for them? The one who came to save sinners, who miraculously brings dead hearts alive, who opens blind eyes to see and empowers those who believe in him to live by faith. That's better. That work is better. He doesn't need our help to usher in his kingdom. And so that's why we don't panic when our freedoms are taken away. I, I hear people say, like, well, but we, we have to make sure at all costs that we keep our freedom of religion because that's how that has enabled the gospel to flourish. It makes sense, right? Like, if we have freedom to worship however we want to, then that is the, the environment that the gospel can flourish. Believe me, I understand the sentiment But historically, it's just patently false. It's never been the way the gospel has spread. Like, what is historically and biblically true is that God works in spite of us. He uses the weak and the powerless in order that he might get the glory. I understand why we think that, but then you have to answer, why is the church radically growing? It's dying here. People are leaving the churches in in droves. And we can talk about it being a pruning, which I think that it is largely, and I think that's a good thing. But what is not up for debate is that people are leaving. Do you know where people are coming to faith in mass droves? It's in the communist world. It's in the oppressive world. Now, does that mean we should pursue that? Well, that's next week. We get to talk about how do we actually overcome that. So you just have to hold on to that. But I look at it much like I look at cancer. I don't ask for cancer. 
didn't ask for cancer to come into my family and disrupt my family and do all that. We don't, I don't want that. I don't pray for that. But when that happens, I say, this is from God. And so I'm going to walk this road before me and trust him. And I just know that historically, that's how God shapes me. He has shaped me through my failures and my suffering and my pain far more than anything else. So go figure. That's what he does. And so when we trust in the sufficiency of his work to bring about all that he desires, then we're free to go about living in the way of Jesus. And that's, that's what we're going to talk about next week. But do you understand how, how, this, how these connect? Like if I believe, if I believe in the person of Jesus Christ, that he is fully God and fully man, and he came in the flesh and lived the life that I could not live and died the death that I deserved and is resurrected in power, and that same power now indwells in me to shape me and change me, and as he changes individual hearts, he changes groups of people and families, and as he changes families, he changes communities, and as he changes communities, he changes areas and regions and nations. Do you see how this works this is how the kingdom works and if I believe in that and I say I don't need anything but Jesus and I don't need any work or anything other than the work of the cross and of the empty tomb if I don't need anything else then that frees me then to live like he lives but when my hope in those things starts to falter that's when I start to look less like Jesus and any parent who has ever yelled at their child to stop yelling, understands this. That as long as my hope is in saying, God, you are sufficient. Jesus, you are sufficient. I, you, you are fully God, fully man. You live this life, and now I am to live this life through you, and so I'm to love my child the way you have loved me, and I fully trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about the change that I desire in my kid. And then as I'm praying for them, and, and, and then it's not happening I say, all right, guys, I got it from here. Just stop it. And I demonstrate in one outburst, I don't fully believe that his work is sufficient. And here's the secret. None of us do. That's why we're all works in progress. It is a constant battle. And so church, what I want you to hear is this is the battle. To focus and behold our Jesus and his all-sufficient work. To put our complete trust in that. And every time we feel ourselves wanting to go after something else, we call ourselves back. And we do that with the word of God, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and surrounded by the family of God to say, No, brother, sister, come back. He's sufficient. He really is. He will make sure his purposes are, are accomplished. He, will, he is faithful to complete the work he has started. We don't need to lose hope. We don't need to lose faith. We keep going. And then, so then the, the question becomes, like, anyway, as we're discerning those messages and we start to hear, and we start, as we're so focused on that, we start to hear and the red flags go off when we say, oh, you're, you're actually speaking from a point of view that says Christ isn't sufficient. So yeah, I'm not going there with you. I'm not going to fill my head with that. I'm going to fill my head here and I'm going to, and then that's going to pour out in fruit. And Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit. And we will grow in that fruit. So we're going we're gonna to talk more about that this next week because here's the thing. We end up saying, like, well, then what do we do? Because I want you to know, I empathize, I sympathize. Like, I grew up here too. This is my country. God placed me here. 
There are some things about this country that I think are the, the, the greatest things that have happened in the history of the world. And there are other things where we've been very blinded by our own cultural sin because we're sinful people. And so what do you do when you look around you and you feel like things are kind of crumbling? When you see people, when you see the culture leading people down paths of destruction, do we, do we just stand back and be like, well, I'm sure Jesus will figure it out at some point. I'm going to go watch Netflix. No. We are actually called to be active in the midst of that. He actually tells us how to overcome the evil of the world. And so that is next week. And there's my hype. Let's pray. Father, God, even as we stop right here, I, I'm just thankful that we, I think it is good that we do this. Because God, I know that my, my posture and my tendencies are that I want to get to the part where you tell me, okay, well then what do I do? And I want to focus on that. But God, we, that would just negate the root of what we are to be doing right now. Which is just to confess that Lord Jesus, you are who you say you are. You are fully God. And you became flesh became fully man and walked among us and lived the life that we were called to live but have failed and died the death that we deserved and then was resurrected in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that same Spirit now dwells in us that we would listen to his voice and we would be changed from the inside out. And that in our change, we would be known by our love and by the fruit of the Spirit. God, that we would be marked by peace and joy and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control, that these would be the things that would grow in us, knowing that we can do that and we don't have to worry about other things as we live this out because we trust you and your work. God, during this time, even as we close in, in worship to you, singing songs of praise to you, God, I, I, I pray that you would convict us of ways that we have diminished you, Lord Jesus. We've said that your, your wisdom is incomplete or your, your power is insufficient or your work is insufficient, that we, you would convict us of that and confront us with that. And we, so we would be able to confess and say, yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe that your work is sufficient to radically transform lives and communities and nations. I believe it, but help my unbelief and guard me against those who would lure me away with a different work, with a different hope. Because we stand here today saying our hope is in you. Give us the faith to believe. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.